Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of The Pragmatic Investor. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Lawrence Fuller. He is a contributor on Seeking Alpha and owner of the Portfolio Architect Investing Group. He has over 25 years of experience managing individual clients' portfolios, and he is very knowledgeable when it comes to macroeconomics and fundamental value investing. Now, we had a great conversation today. We talked about a lot of things, including the recent uh, Fed policy, uh, the recent Fed hikes, talked about everything in macro. Lawrence has a bit of a, what you might call a contrarian view, though I strongly agree with some of his points, whereby we might actually achieve that soft landing. So he's actually quite bullish. And we even talked about a specific stock that he is very bullish on, which is Gannett, which is has the stock ticker GCI. Please go ahead and check out Lawrence's profile on Seeking Alpha. You won't be disappointed. And if you like the content, you can also check me out on Seeking Alpha, The Pragmatic Investor, where I also write regularly on macro, crypto, commodities, and many different stocks. And of course, you guys can subscribe and like on YouTube or Spotify, wherever you're listening. It would be a great help. As always, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. All right, welcome back, and I'm joined today by Lawrence Fuller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, James. All right, so we've got we've had quite an interesting week in markets. Um, obviously, we had that Fed meeting with that 25 uh, rate hike. We've also mm-hmm. had a lot of movement in regional bank stocks with some more bank failures coming in. So definitely a very interesting time. Let's begin by dialing in with a, a simple question. Um, do you think that was the last rate hike? Has the Fed paused? I, I yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think absolutely. I mean, the I don't think they needed another rate hike, but but the Fed typically does what the market expects. In particular, this chairman, Chairman Powell, who's very market friendly, as we know, or has been mm-hmm. over the past five years. So, if um, you know, I, I just use the uh, the Fed funds futures as a guide for where short term rates are going to be, and if the you know if the market uh, for if let's say. Given all this bank, regional bank turmoil, we saw Fed fund futures predict, you know, uh, a seventy five percent chance there'd be no rate hike. I don't think the Fed would have raised rates. Mm-hmm. So they really kind of operate, uh, let the market guide them, and in the very short term, but in the long term, they still play this rhetoric game, which is where they want to try to manage expectations. They don't want they don't want uh, the market. Or consumers, for that matter, to be be concerned that prices are not going to come down. So they, you know, these Fed governors are deployed like soldiers to go out and give uh, uh, speeches and talk about how they're going to remain vigilant and they're going to keep raising rates and they're going to hold them higher for longer. But if you look at where, for example, the two-year Treasury yield is, it's plunged mm-hmm. from you know over five to now in the high threes. That's telling you the Fed's going to cut rates. Uh, mm-hmm. They may not know it yet or want to admit it, but they'll probably be cutting rates. I hope they don't cut rates too soon because that would mean they're really having some serious economic stress. But I think they'll be able to gradually lower rates as we get into the, into the, let's say the fourth quarter of next year, because mm-hmm. inflation is coming down closer to target. We're you know we're skirting with very low below trend growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. You talk about that uh, those Fed funds futures, and a lot of the uh, it does seem the market does seem to be already pricing in Fed, you know, a substantial amount of Fed uh, rate cuts already this year. Is that yeah. then? Would you agree with that assessment? Like you say that even if they don't know it, they are going to be forced to cut. Yeah, and, and you know, people will uh, a lot of the a lot of the bear the bear consensus out there will will argue. Um, uh, that they're going to keep have to keep rates higher, but you know if you go back to when they first started raising rates, mm-hmm. uh, when short term when 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 Fed funds was zero, the very short term Treasury yields were soaring, and mm-hmm. well in anticipation of of a huge a significant spike in in Fed funds rate, and they at that time were denying that they were going to have to raise rates much at all. So you know they're really that's almost the reverse situation, but it's the same thing playing out where. They're going to follow the market. Powell's going to listen to the market, but they're not going to admit to it. 
um, because, you know, they don't want to cause a panic, but they also, they always want to manage expectations. And, they're, and, and as far as inflation is concerned, expectations is half the game. And they seem to be fairly contained at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You look at, at uh, you know, five-year, 10-year inflation expectations, even three-year, they're coming down, maybe not so much in the, the next 12 months, but, but they will. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not too concerned. Okay, so in terms of inflation, you don't see that being a problem moving forward. I, 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 you know, I've said no. I've said I've said since uh, since last summer that I thought the rate would would fall as fast as it rose. So in about eighteen mm-hmm. months, we went from two. It depends. You can talk about CPI or or uh, the PCE, which is what the Fed focuses on. But if you just use the CPI, we went from two to nine point one in June of last year. And if you look at the uh, the deceleration in the rate, the decline in the rate, it you know we're about halfway through uh, nine months now, and we're, we've cut the rate in half. And so I think we you know we'll get in this argument. Well, do we need to be at two percent? Mm-hmm. Um, what's funny is is that if you go back a decade when uh, we came out of the the, uh, the housing crisis, the great financial crisis, the Fed was battling to get inflation up to 2%. Right, they never yeah. could. They never mm-hmm. could. So they were talking about, well, we want to we want to be in a range. We want to get sort of within an average of 2%. Mm-hmm. And I think that as we come down, uh, uh, Powell will change his tone and talk about we want to see an average of 2%, which means if we're a little over, it's okay because if we go into another another down economic downturn we're going to fall below two and so if we smooth out over the long term and we have so that, i think that's why we can get down to below three and mm-hmm. um you know and that will that will be enough for the fed to to, to be comfortable again mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. and now as we were talking before you would call yourself a little bit of a contrarian obviously i think bear sentiment is quite high right now i was actually uh, showing my subscribers some charts where uh like uh, short positions are actually at all-time highs, which you know, um, you know, maybe not that not not that surprisingly, it, it often acts as a as a kind of a signal that the it's time to buy. Yeah, I mean the the um, you know, unfortunately, I think the contrary the, the sentiment, whether it's um consumer or uh, investor uh, indicators, have lost a little bit of their validity, in my view, in the last several years, and I. I mean, I, I started in the business in 1993. So it's about 30 years. I've watched three, three big cycles come through. And, um, what I hate to say, I hate to inject a little politics into the sentiment indicators, but because we've become such a divisive country on the political front, mm-hmm. instead of instead, when people are asked questions about economics and, you know, pocketbook issues, even if they're doing well, depending on what side of the aisle they're they're, instead of it being sort of a 55-45 split, it's become this 90-10, 95-5 split. Mm-hmm. And um, and both sides do it. And so it's it's I think it's thwarted a little bit of the effectiveness of sentiment indicators. And how in the world do you explain you know, all-time low unemployment rate, uh, phenomenal wage, we have very good, very strong wage growth, um, and, and, and consumer sentiment that's not much higher than it was, you know, post great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have tremendous amount of wealth out there. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me that at least on the consumer side, people would be so negative. I understand mm-hmm. the inflation, but, um, you know, the, the, the thing that, that people don't recognize is that while inflation was rising, so were incomes. Mm-hmm. So we didn't spend a whole lot of time where people were, were necessarily uh, uh i mean i know there's always there's always going to be certain cases certain demographics suffer a lot more than others but but in in a, in a in a broad sense people have had phenomenal wage growth especially actually the lowest quartile the, the right. lowest wage income earners have earned the, have, have realized the highest wage gains they've also received the largest amount of of, of physical stimulus funds and so mm-hmm. that really offset the, the spike and now that the inflation is coming down, um, you know those wage gains are holding up. The cash, the surplus excess cash out there is still it's it's you know it's it's uh, declining, but it's still helping support support spending, which is why we've averted a recession. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit different this time in that sense that you know, people are talking about that kind of a more of a white collar crisis. No way you get the people yeah. in the tech space uh, losing their mm-hmm. jobs rather than more um, you know, general uh, layoffs. So in terms yeah. of this recession, which you know they're they're calling now the most anticipated recession, uh, you know, of all of all time, you yeah. would then believe that there is we've avoided the recession that it's not coming anytime soon or that it's going to come eventually but i mean well i guess a recession will always come eventually but it always comes eventually yeah i mean i i just don't see you know the recessions that, that um uh i'm trying to think that the first recession i i experienced was in 91 coming out of school and not being able to find a job and not understanding why <laughs> you know yeah. um and then the other ones were obviously bubbles we had a tech bubble uh, a lot of overinvestment in, in in that industry, and but that was a relatively mild consumer recession, and then obviously the housing bubble. But if you look at this particular cycle, what's so different about it is that you go back to to you know the pandemic really threw a monkey wrench in everything. But we had all these bubbles if you went back to uh, pre-pandemic days, and they kind of burst one by one, but not simultaneously. You now we had a bubble in cryptocurrencies. It was a $2 trillion industry. It burst. Um, mm-hmm. We had a bubble in SPACs. Uh, we had a bubble in, you know, different parts of the market at different times um, deflated without, mm-hmm. instead of, instead of money, instead of, you know, it creating a panic and a, and a, and a, a trigger, a, a trickle effect across markets. It sort of was like whack-a-mole. And so we, mm-hmm. we took out these, these excesses one by one over time. And even we're doing the same thing now with the housing market, but, you know, the, the thing about the housing market, prices and, and rents soared and housing prices got a little bit insane again, but there's no supply. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's holding prices up and they're deflating in terms of their, their, uh, their increases on a year year basis, but they're not declining in any way that people are, are going to get concerned or feel that they've lost mm-hmm. a whole bunch of wealth, you know? So, uh, I, I think the recession comes, but we need to see, um, you know, I, I don't really even see a recession next year. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is, I think this is sort of a, a mid-cycle slowdown is what it is. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, you talk about soft landings and the last one we had was arguably in the mid 1990s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just started in the financial, financial business at that point. I really didn't even know what a soft landing was, but, um, but, it's, it seems like we're that's what we're due for this time around, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but recessions are a lot about psychology, and the only thing I get worried about is that 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 this bearish consensus becomes so dominant that they start to sway the way consumers respond. And up mm-hmm. to that point, it hasn't happened yet. And then also, you know, the businesses that I talk to, some are struggling. I talked to a good friend of mine who is working with a trucking company. And they're having a horrible time. And that's that's a very difficult industry right now. You look at other businesses and, you know, look at look at like the restaurant business, you know, and, and, and they're, they're doing extremely well. Um, you know, I go to hotel. I've been traveling a lot last month. I've been in hotels, been in airports, been in restaurants, bars, packed. Right. Packed. You know, it's just not it's not what you typically see when you're on the cusp of an economic downturn. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. It does kind of clash a lot with uh, basically what you what we've been seeing lately in the financial media, especially when it comes to banks, right? Because that's also yeah. kind of a psychological uh, element to it. So we've had yeah, a lot I, of uh, people concerned absolutely. about the banks, well, cons- and rightfully so, right? Because we have had some yeah. of the uh, some of the regional banks obviously struggle following those um, all those rate rate hikes. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel that fits in? I mean, are you concerned about this at all? How do you think it fits into the uh, the upcoming months? That, well, if it was a credit crisis, I'd be really concerned, but it's not. Mm-hmm. It's a liquidity crisis, and it's it's a liquidity crisis for a handful of banks that didn't do a great job, uh, you know, managing their assets and their liabilities, their balance sheets. And, mm-hmm. you know, you could even take a heavyweight like Schwab, for example, it's really struggling because of the... Um, um, you know, the withdrawal of deposits, people were, were, had money in their investment accounts earning zero. And all of a sudden somebody told them, wow, you can earn 4% at SoFi on a, on a money market fund and they'll insure you up to $2 million. We'll pull their money out and pull it there. So, mm-hmm. you know, 
um, it's it's and credit conditions are going to tighten as a result. Of, they're already tightening as a result of this, which is another reason that the Fed is done raising interest rates. But um, I don't, I don't yet see it as as something that's going to be the trigger for a downturn. I don't like the way the the the, the Fed didn't acknowledge. Sharon Powell didn't do a great job of acknowledging the issue. They kind of swept mm-hmm. it under the rug, said everything's right. fine. I had this this scary um deja vu about when Bernanke said subprime is contained you know <laughs> got me a little mm-hmm. nervous but it's a different issue it's like I said it's not a credit issue so uh you know first republic's gone well JP Morgan swoops in basically takes over nothing's really changed deposits are all recovered uh lending continues but but again the, 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 there's going to be a a tightening in lending standards, obviously, but I think that, um, um, yeah, it's something we just have to watch. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a leading indicator, but it has to result in some other factors in order to see a contraction in economic activity. Mm-hmm. You know? Okay. Yeah. So let's say then, and I, I kind of agree to a certain extent, of course, that uh, we are, you know, entering perhaps a more bullish market in equities, uh, where do you think is is the place to be? Where the where those gains going to be found in the next cycle? Um, it, it's um, it's a. I think that you can't really. I think first off, it depends on your time frame, right? I mean, I I, I could say that mm-hmm. um, right. text. You know, the 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 bears will criticize the breadth of this rally and say that it's only being led by a half a dozen text the big mega cap tech stocks. Mm-hmm, and that right. would be accurate. That'd be accurate over the last three months. Mm-hmm. But if you went back six months, you'd see that the rest of the market is what was driving the gains off the October low. We had phenomenal breadth in the market. Mm-hmm. And then that, that breadth started to wane a bit. And the big mega cap tech stocks have been lagging behind. And now all of a sudden, they've really, if you look at it, they've caught up in the last three months. It's not as though they led. They were, they were, they were catching up with the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. So now I think that in order for us to, to sort of break out of this this range we've been in on the S and P, um, four thousand to forty two hundred or so, um, you know the, the the mega cap tech names need to pass the baton to the re- the remainder mm-hmm. of the market. We need to see breadth start to improve. That's mm-hmm. something I'm I'm anticipating because you know earnings, which uh, the end of the first quarter, um, you know the consensus view is. S&P earnings would decline about 6.7, 6.8%. And, you know, we're a little more than halfway through now, more than halfway through now. And that, that, that decline is narrowed by 50%. Now it's closer to three, three and change. And so earnings are coming in a lot better than expected. And, and the other, the other uh, issue that, that um, bears are pointing to is that when we get these earnings reports, analysts are going to start to lower their, their forward projections a year out dramatically mm-hmm. that's not happening uh yeah the, the mm-hmm. next quarter is coming down but next year is actually turning up so mm-hmm. margin margins are holding up a lot better than um than i think they were expecting you know and that's 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 a positive for the market so mm-hmm. that's why i'm staying staying invested and staying uh, i you know i'm not looking for a, a new all-time obvious honor but i think you have to view it mm-hmm. as, as view it as an uptrend even if it's a modest one yeah, absolutely. And I agree with a lot of what you said there, especially I recently uh, talked about the idea that, uh, like you say, that perhaps we will get uh, some of the uh, some of the other assets catching up in this phase. So perhaps maybe yeah. um, seeing something like the Russell 2000 maybe uh, outperforming a little bit. Would you agree with that? To an well, extent? yeah, it, it, it was outperforming off, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Russell bottomed in June of last year, well before the S&P. And it turned out, right. which was a leading indicator coming out of the October low that the mm-hmm. market was, you know, getting a lot healthier. And mm-hmm. it's since it's since lagged largely because of there's a big financial weighting in, in the Russell 2000s. So that's obviously uh, hurt the index with a lot of the smaller banks struggling. And um, um, but also you've got highly leveraged companies in there. And, mm-hmm. and there's been a real uh, sell off in especially consumer cyclical Type names that are that are that are anything that's leveraged because the cost the cost of money is going up dramatically, so that weighs on the Russell. 
Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I think if you if you like if, if you're a long term investor and you're looking out over the next couple of years to put money to work, it, it sounds crazy, but the financial sector is a great place to do it. Uh, and right. you don't go and you know you don't go and speculate on pack west. Hope it goes from five mm-hmm. to seven. Okay. Right. Um, but you buy the money center banks, you know, you buy the Bank of America's, JP Morgan's, you buy the leaders, um, that are, that are really at, at, um, I mean, in fact, I saw something last week that showed the regional bank index now on a price to book basis is right where it was during the great financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when General Electric had a credit rating equivalent to Vietnam. That's how bad it was. Bank of America stock had gone from 50 into the single digits. Mm-hmm. So that's where we are on a valuation basis for the regional. So, you know, if you don't want to pick a regional, there's obviously there's the um, the KRE, the Regional Bank Index, where you don't have to worry about picking the wrong name. And now, I mean, you know, I think that that is a, the, the lowest risk long term investment you can make in the market right now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, otherwise, I'm a you know I'm a value investor. I I, I try to. I try to buy, I try to find out names that are out of favor, that are extreme discounts to uh, intrinsic value and I'm very patient and, uh, pick my spots and try to build positions. I, I, um, so that's, that's, I, I'm not an, I'm not someone who invests in just in the S and P or the Russell 2000. I don't do any index investing, but I just mm-hmm. keep sort of a view. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic on the index or, um, or I, I, you know, I think it's overvalued and I'm bearish on the index, mm-hmm. but, um, that doesn't mean I'm investing in that particular index, you know. Mm-hmm. No, it definitely, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if there was ever a time to buy when there's blood on the streets, now now would be, now would be the time. I think with it, when it comes to yeah, the banks, you can, you can be early, but uh, it's it's uh, it's always worked in the past, you know. <laughs> so absolutely. And before we started this conversation, we were actually uh, you were telling me about a, a specific name that you uh, that you're quite a. Yeah. Quite invested in or quite attached to, uh, which recently reported earnings. I just yeah, looked at yeah. it a moment ago. It um, gave gave us a nice post earnings pop of about twenty percent. Well, it was actually a, uh, a that was recovering a twenty percent uh, decline on the day of earnings. Um, oh, I, so I got to correct that, but you know it's Gannett, and um, yeah, I've been uh, uh, written on the stock uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years, and it's it's my mm-hmm. largest holding. It's a two dollar stock. Um, you know, you might call it speculative, but, um, it's a very, it's a small cap stock, but it's, uh, you know, it's the largest, uh, print newspaper company in the country, but it's in the midst of a, uh, what's the, now going on three year transition into the digital world. Okay. And, and so, you know, my investment thesis is sort of following the line that this company is following the lines of uh, the New York Times in its transition from 2010 to 2020, uh, where, you know, the Times was a single digits, uh, single digit stock, six, seven, eight, nine dollar stock that went to 50 in its mm-hmm. transformation. And it basically did that by, uh, cutting costs, eliminating its debt and, you know, growing net income, growing cash flow and becoming the, 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 the digital powerhouse that it is today. And, and so Gannett is in the third year of that process. And, um, they've had, uh, they had to endure the pandemic the first year. Uh, right. Then they had to endure the recession. <laughs> then they had to endure a, a huge spike in in, in, uh, in input costs of paper and ink, which um, hit them tremendously hard last year. And now they're finally on the cusp of turning things around. I hope, hope hopefully, for good. Mm-hmm. But every quarter they pay down more debt, um, and uh, they're uh, reducing costs. And they're becoming a more efficient operation, and they're growing digital revenues. I think when I started investing in the company, it was less than it was about 24% of their business was digital revenue. Now it's up 37%. So it's, uh, it's one of these names that I'm very comfortable holding for the long term because I think I'm going to earn multiples of, you know, multiples of the price today in, you know, in the coming years. So. Uh, no, I'm, I'm looking at the stock. I mean, the valuation looks good. I, I like the narrative. That's Gannett. Stock ticker is GCI for anyone uh, listening to this. Um, now, in terms of the comp, it, it does seem like it's quite a competitive market. No, the, the digital media. I mean, do, do you ever well, have concerns it, about it, the way it's going? I mean, nowadays people just want stuff for free. How are they monetizing exactly? 
Well, they, they, they have, um, they, they've got, there's two pieces to their, well, actually there, there was two pieces. Now there's a third piece to their puzzle, but they, you know, they have a, uh, an enormous footprint across the country. They have, um, local papers in 48 states mm-hmm. and, uh, that all have digital platforms. Now the biggest is USA Today and USA Today Sports mm-hmm. Network. And, um, so they, they've, they've acquired about 2 million digital subscribers. And that growth rate has slowed for slowed down a bit. I'll explain why in a second. And then they also have uh, a business that's actually unrelated, which is people are really not aware of, and it's called their digital marketing services business or services unit, DMS for short. Um, but this is a um, this is a business that that basically services about fifteen thousand small medium sized companies and helps build helps them build an, uh, an internet presence. And mm-hmm. uh, provides them all sorts of tools. Sort of operates as a software as a service company, um, where uh, you know you can choose from a menu as far as which services you're going to buy. And you know, there's a re- it's a recurring revenue stream for Gannett, but mm-hmm. it's not really it only it operates as a separate business, but it's under the umbrella of Gannett, mm-hmm. and it's one of the largest companies in the country of its size. It's doing nearly 500 million a year in revenue. About 60, 60 million in EBITDA, double-digit margins, and growing. And mm-hmm. if you if you were to have that company on its own, it would probably be trading in the neighborhood of three to four times sales, which would still be a low valuation. Uh, that would value the company somewhere between one and a half to two billion dollars. Mm-hmm. The enterprise value of Gannett today is is less than one point five billion dollars. Okay. So so this this business, I think that. They are looking for different ways to monetize, either by spinning it off, perhaps selling it, retaining a percentage of the business. But it has tremendous growth potential, and it's just not—it's not being reflected in the company. Um, so that's the real gem inside of Gannett that no one fully understands. The other—the other thing that's that's really exciting about what they're doing is that while they only have two million digital subscribers, and it. You know, that, that produces something in the neighborhood of 140 million in revenue for them every year. They have about 190 million eyeballs on their digital platform every month. So, you know, if you think about what everyone's trying to do with, with social media, we're trying to, mo- everyone wants to monetize their followers. Mm-hmm. Right. If, if you had a million followers on Instagram or I had a million followers on TikTok, we could make a tremendous amount of money selling products. Okay. Mm-hmm. And what Gannett is doing is they're taking 190 million eyeballs on their digital platform and they're setting up affiliate deals with different companies that want to access those, I'm going to call them followers, but, you know, people that are on their sites and they're not paying Gannett anything, but that's a huge, tremendous value that's, that's being, it's not being uh, realized. So, uh, to date, just, just since the beginning of the year, They've signed deals with gambling.com, which is, you know, uh, also a publicly traded company. Um, they, they basically provide, you know, information, odds, all sorts of data for gamblers that might then want to go to a DraftKings or one of the other gambling companies, open a gambling account, start gambling. So what gambling.com wants to do or is doing now is advertising on Gannett's platform. And so if, if one of the 190 million eyeballs comes to a Gannett platform, clicks on gambling.com for information on a game they want to bet on, opens an account at DraftKings, gambling.com now splits the revenue that they, they receive from DraftKings with Gannett. Okay. That's- and that, that's an affiliate deal. And they've done the same thing, when, which is probably going to be much larger scale with Forbes Marketplace. Which is which is mm-hmm. selling financial services to consumers, and they provide, you know, Forbes, Forbes Marketplace. Will, if you want to want to, for example, you want expert reviews of insurance policies or some other kind of financial product. It's the same situation. If if a consumer that is on a Connect platform clicks the link, to Forbes Marketplace buys a buys a product, they then share the revenue with Gannett. And so during the earnings conference call. Uh, CEO Mike Reed talked about two other two other um, affiliate deals he's working on. Well, mm-hmm. You know, it's very very general. Uh, one in one in the education sector, 
one in the, uh, the the home home building industry of some sort, home building housewares. I'm not sure exactly what what it what it, it will be. So he's you know as they rack these up, this is no cost, no overhead revenue mm-hmm. for Gannett, and mm-hmm. it's pure profit right to the bottom yeah. line. So mm-hmm. we're going to find out in the coming quarters how much of a revenue stream this is, and I think that's one of the reasons that. The the guidance is extremely conservative. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they beat, they beat. They were looking. Uh, the consensus was for them to lose money. They ended up earning uh, had net income of ten million for the quarter, and then they raised their guidance very modestly for the coming quarter, or actually for the coming year. I think they're going to continue to be able to do that as the year goes on. So, so hopefully, we build some upward momentum stock again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, everything you say makes makes sort of sense. I guess this idea that Gannett just as this very valuable asset, which is that kind of captive audience, no? And now it's just a matter of them monetizing it. Yeah, no one views them as a as a. I mean, you can look at the other uh, the other platforms out there and the amount of revenue they they bring in from advertising. And uh, uh, this this is another this is another way for them to monetize, you know, their their business. And it's never been viewed that way. So I think it's mm-hmm. it's um and and the, the valuation is. Uh, to be honest, absurd. I mean, it's it, this company's being valued as though it's going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a hundred million in cash. They 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 pay down their debt every single quarter. They reduce debt, and uh, and they're going to return to free cash flow, which should be in the neighborhood conservatively of a hundred million this year. Mm-hmm. So you have a market cap of two hundred seventy million dollars. You're an enterprise value of around one point four billion dollars for a company that's doing nearly three billion in revenue. Um, and conservatively, three hundred million in EBITDA. It's just it's mm-hmm. trading at less than one times. That's that's mm-hmm. that's nuts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's nuts. I mean, I, I just I don't I don't see a lot of downside in a stock like that with that kind of valuation. Mm-hmm. For me, it's more a matter of time mm-hmm. than than it is you know will it happen. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, we have another pandemic, another mm-hmm. pandemic, another recession. Okay, I'm gonna have to wait another year. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> We could dodge another, you know, another, another, another major market event. I think things will really kick in. So, yeah. So you, you've thrown a few numbers out there. The stock is currently trading around two dollars, I believe. Is yeah. there a particular price target that you would have in mind, or is that not how you think about it so much? Well, I can, you know, I can do. I've done in the in the writings I've done on Seek Alpha. I've done. Um, uh, come up with several several different methodologies for valuing the company. If I, I can, if I price it on cash flow and I project cash flow, um, go back a year before uh, the inflation uh, wiped out free cash flow because they, they incurred about a hundred million dollars in extra costs. From, you know, mostly mm-hmm. due to print and paper. I mean, ink and paper, um, as well as wage costs and things like that. Um, but if you go back a year ago. They were forecasting 40% uh, annualized growth in, in free cash flow going out five years, which would have, or to 2000, let's see, 20, 25, 26, you would have been up in the neighborhood of 300, 350 million in free cash flow. They would have, they would have completely paid off their debt. And I can see the stock trading at $20. Um, that's, that's essentially what the New York Times did. If you look, if you go back and look at the Times from 2010 to 2020, they were carrying, you know, nearly a billion in debt. They had no cash, and they they went through this transformation. The debt was reduced every year. Um, their digital percentage of their overall business rose rapidly. Once it got up close to fifty percent, and the debt got down to a level where net income really took off, exploded. The stock never looked back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when do when is when you when do investors see that and then everyone jumps on board you know you you don't really know when that's going to happen all you can do is have confidence that it's going to happen i've got tremendous confidence it's going to happen i just Mm -hmm. it it would be happening right now like i said if we had if they hadn't been hit with 100 million in additional costs that they Mm -hmm. they were anticipating but what they did in the fourth quarter last year is they they cut their operating costs by over 200 million dollars so having both reduced costs and now seeing benefits is the producer price index comes down and and uh, those input costs are falling. They're benefiting in both in both ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I think um, I think that uh, uh, 
uh, you know, conservatively, I can make an argument to see the stock at eight to ten dollars in the next two years. Oh, that's a, that's a significant return. Who knows? Maybe this uh, this interview will go viral, and that will yeah, really help yeah, uh, get the yeah. ball rolling. You know, <laughs> from your I'll lips. Have to make the moves before I publish this, though, if if, if that All happens. Right. Yeah, you have plenty of time. But um, <laughs> no, it's 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 a um, it's a very interesting story, and if you, hmm. you go back and, and look at uh, the things I've written about it, you you sort of get the the, the timeline on the things that have happened in the book. But they were very much on track for. I think what would have been an eight to ten dollar stock because before the inflation hit, which really struck them in the second, in the middle, late, late, late first quarter of last year, the mm -hmm. stock was flirting with seven dollars, and mm -hmm. um, and and then um, they in Q two uh, they they incurred a this this huge spike in prices and it they went from. Projecting 180 million free cash flow to zero in one quarter. Mm. That was it, and that's that sent the stock reeling. And you know, then we had the October lows, and the stock got down to a dollar again. And now we're working our way back up. Is that is that something that could happen again though? With like just that but, kind of surprise? Well, anything could happen, but I, I think you'd have to have another pandemic, or you'd have to have mm. another you know an out something that would they would lead they would lead prices in, for their particular <laughs> situation to go back up again. I mean. Mm. One of the things that they, they uh, management did uh, in response to that increase in input costs is go to much more of a variable cost model where they started to outsource a lot of the things that they were doing in house to reduce costs and, re and reduce that that uh, um, the risk of, of you know of input prices uh, mm -hmm. rising on like that again. So. Mm -hmm. um, but it's becoming a different company every quarter. I mean, the, the, the new businesses that they're looking to get into, the uh, new revenue streams. Um, it's um, it's just uh, I think th there are no analysts on Wall Street that really cover the stock. Uh, there's a couple that have been assigned to it, and it's an afterthought for them. I mean, they keep sell ratings on the stock, so they don't have to do any work on it. Um, and uh, it's not widely held. I mean, the largest mm -hmm. shareholders are Bill Miller. Uh, was a famed uh, value investor who owns about ten percent of, of, of the shares. Fidelity mm -hmm. is now a ten percent shareholder, and I think they're an outstanding research shop. They really know what they're doing, and they've gone. They've increased their position to ten percent, uh, and so uh, it, it's you know it's timing is the issue on this one. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's weather. I think it's it's when. Uh, definitely, you make a compelling case. I've actually been giving this some thought. I've now had a few guests on. Um, first one I had on was uh, another essay contributor, uh, Brett Ashcroft, and he actually gave me a pretty good uh, call on Uber, which recently released earnings, had a nice pop there. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about perhaps starting kind of a pragmatic investor podcast portfolio, where maybe ah, okay. I get each guest to uh, contribute a stock. Would it be uh, yeah. safe to say that this is yours? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's my largest, it's my largest position, so it has to be. I can't. <laughs> Right, well, we'll Uber's still we'll expensive for me though, so I can't. I can't be. But you've got a growth stock and a value stock. It's good. <laughs> you know? All right. So, well, we've talked a lot about this very specific stock. I would like to know a little bit more about um, just your general investment style and kind of also, obviously, you're on Seeking Alpha. You've got your investing group there. Kind of uh, what you do. Well, just a bit of everything. Just uh, also your history you know, and how you got started. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been. Uh, I, I, I've been a. Uh, um, Managing portfolios for individual clients for 30 years. I started at Merrill Lynch in 1993 and um, uh, worked at several other firms before starting my own investment advisory firm in 2005. And uh, mm -hmm. I started writing on Seeking Alpha 10 years ago, which is shocking. And I had a couple, maybe a year or two in there where I would fade away and come back to them and stuff. But I really, uh, I, what I like about writing on Seeking Alpha is that it, it, it's uh, and I and I've done. I used to do it once a week or a couple times a month. To now I do. I, I publish my morning brief uh, every day because mm -hmm. it it forces me to keep a pulse on the markets and what's going on in the economy every mm -hmm. single day. I mean, I'm reviewing. Uh, I'm reviewing the the companies and the, what's going on in the market, but I'm also looking at the economic data every single day, and also follow the technicals. So I've got a hand handle on um, on. Uh, you know, as far as my strategic outlook, it's it's not as 
it's not a static thing. I mean, it's like a, it's like a big pile of clay and I'm constantly tweaking it based on the incoming data. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I write. And when I write about it, it keeps me honest, keeps me focused. Mm-hmm. And, uh, if I'm, you know, if I'm moving off the tracks or moving in the wrong direction, it, it's nice to get feedback, even when it's criticism, right. because it makes yeah. me think about what I'm saying. What am I doing? You know, are these people right? Is someone telling me, oh, you don't know what you're talking about? I, it makes me recheck and, and double, double, double take. What, what, am, what am I thinking? How am I doing, doing these, uh, doing things? So I, I love uh, that. Even though it takes a couple hours a day, I love that, that, uh, uh, that exercise, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so my marketplace, you know, my marketplace is uh, basically me putting my investment strategy to work in, in portfolios. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of take it, I, well, I do take an all weather approach. So, okay. You know, I've got exposure to every asset class, sort of a core weighting, um, because as much as I try to figure out what's happening, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, no one is, is right, you know, all the time, certainly. But if I'm right 55% of the time, I'm going to be happy. So, you know, when, when, I, when I've got exposure to commodities, for example, like I've got weightings in gold and silver, um, that's been a huge help this year. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought? Uh, you know, right. but I, because I maintain a core weighting there, I'm benefiting from a gold mm-hmm. and silver weighting in some of my, my gold miner positions. Um, you know, I've got in my fixed income, which has been, uh, fixed income has been really tough to manage, but I've been able to, um, avoid losses each year over the last four years and keep positive returns every year just by hedging the portfolio with, uh, inverse interest rate ETFs, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and also keeping a large cash position so I can take advantage of these. You know, the volatility in the bond market has been mm-hmm. greater than that in the stock market the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then on the stock side, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably be categorized as a GARP investor, growth at a reasonable price. Okay. Uh, you know, I've got, I've got some growth. St- I mean, I, you know, I, own, I own some tech stocks and some growth stocks, but I typically focus on the lower multiple names. Mm-hmm. I, I'll never pay 10 times sales for anything. That's just sort mm-hmm. of my... My number that right. I can't going to go over, mm-hmm. um, and then I, I, you know, I, I like dividends just like everyone else. So I might have some high dividend stocks, low multiple stocks, but I'll have a handful. And I am also multi cap, so I don't really discriminate against one 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 size of company. Um, and uh, I just manage those allocations in each asset class, sort of like a goal goalposts. So, mm-hmm. you know, my maximum weighting and my minimum weighting, and I'm just, you know, constantly moving the goalposts, you know, overweight mm-hmm. equities, underweight bonds, back and forth, you know. Right. Um, so I, that's, uh, that's what I do. And I do the same thing for my clients and, and then my marketplace uh, subscribers just watch the insanity from day to day and see what they're <laughs> doing. You know, hopefully I, I, they, they, they come up, they call some ideas for their own portfolios, and they also um, mm-hmm. navigate their asset allocations in a way that helps them following what I'm doing. So, mm-hmm. And now we started off talking about the macro as well. I guess that guides you. So you would also, I'm guessing you, you would always stay somewhat invested, but maybe play around with the kind of balance of cash, depending on your macro outlook. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting when you, th- when you think about tactical asset allocation, I think people think about just, Oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to reduce my stock weighting now from 50% to 40%, right? Mm-hmm. Overnight. Well, that, that was that. That's generally what I like to think I'm doing. But what's what's crazy about it is, is that it, it happens on its own. Because as markets get overbought, they get overextended. And if you look at a portfolio, let's say you own 40 stocks, you look at your portfolio, you're you're thinking, wow, this this is really a nosebleed territory. This stock is getting really expensive. And you start mm-hmm. trimming positions right. to call some profits and take money off the table. And the next thing you know. You've generated, you know, you, you've you've reduced your allocation from fifty mm-hmm. to forty just by pulling some money off the table. When the markets get get cheap again, and you follow a lot of individual securities, I've got a watch list of one hundred and fifty stocks that I track. Mm-hmm. Well, if I if I go through my watch list and I see, oh my gosh, there's three names in in the tech sector I want to buy. There's there's four names in the consumer discretionary sector I want to buy. The markets are usually bottoming out because I've got too many things I want to buy. And I put my cash to work and that sort of brings my allocation, you know, my, my, my weighting back up again. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 yeah, it, it, it's, um, 
happens almost without trying if you're really if you're really mm-hmm. following you know valuations and what's going on in the macro yeah that that makes that makes perfect sense and would you ever use uh, something like option strategies or something like that <laughs> yeah i've got a i've got a a, a portfolio i started uh, I think three years ago now, um, it's the dividend and option income portfolio. So what I uh, basically, I, I allocate about 10% to a position. So I'm, I maintain about you know, when the portfolio has gone up in value nicely. So I may probably have about 13 or 14 positions. Ideally, I'm looking for a dividend paying stocks. And then I will try to monetize the position by selling puts or selling calls mm-hmm. right. um, without exceeding 10% weighting. In uh, in uh, um, in the in that name, so I've got three different ways to, to generate income, and a lot of the names I just keep. You know, if the stocks call away, I look and it pulls back. I buy it back, collect the dividends, and continue to write puts and calls on it. So that's my that's that's a relatively low risk option strategy because mm-hmm. I'm 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 simply you know positioning myself as the house and collecting premiums more or less from the speculators, which I like. Yeah, that's certainly a, a strategy that has worked well. I know uh, Victor Durganov, who I had on, uh, uses uh, some similar strategies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to try to catch you out here. You did say that you know in your portfolio you have uh, exposure to every asset. Yeah. Would, um, would that include crypto? Uh, <clears throat> the only article I ever wrote uh, on Bitcoin, if you go back, it's funny, I was sharing this with my son, who's uh, 19, who's asking me about crypto. Mm-hmm. Was um, when the Bitcoin ETF came out uh, a little more than a year ago. Bitcoin is around sixty five thousand, and I said, "I think that's the top. It's over." <laughs> and I wrote a bear. I wrote my first bearish bearish article on something, and in retrospect, it looks really smart right now. Um, so that that's the only statement I've had publicly about cryptocurrencies. I I don't. You know, I've never seen the value. In them. I, I don't think they have any intrinsic value. And I, I hate to, you know, uh, it's not a form of criticism. I just think that mm-hmm. I think it's a solution that never had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it's not. And it's also it's, for me, it's just not a store of value. I mean, I you know, if I want to and especially now cat you can earn 45 percent on cash it really mm-hmm. makes it difficult because if it's a store of value i don't i don't earn interest on it and uh in order for it to go up to va- go up in value i need to find other people who think it's worth more and get them to buy it mm-hmm. there's no earnings there's no interest it's you know it it's worth what everybody collectively thinks it's worth on any given day which is what troubles me because i don't have any way to fundamentally value it other mm-hmm. than it being, I know that it's a, there's a limited amount of it, like gold. Mm-hmm. So we can right. say, okay, you know, what's gold worth? Um, but I've seen re- rationales for it's going to go up because of this, because of that. And, you know, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I don't see any clear, consistent pattern. Mm-hmm. But I do see lots of people on social media that I don't think know anything about anything, marketing it, promoting it, trying to make profits from it, which is a little discouraging. So, okay. sorry, <laughs> I didn't burst, your, uh, burst the bubble see. there. I mean, I hope, <laughs> I'm, I hope I'm proven wrong because I mean, I want everybody to make money. I mean, I really think um, that um, you know this is this is just uh, the market is something that younger people need to learn about as soon as they can. Because it's uh, it's really really the best way for people that don't have money to build wealth, and there's really no other better way. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to be disciplined and you have to be consistent, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. we are our own worst enemies in the world of finance. You know, yeah, I think in that to that extent, the crypto space does a kind of uh, embody the opposite values in a lot of ways, where it's not about discipline; it's about you know, kind of. Those trying to get rich quick kind of scheme, just catch a crypto pump and become an overnight yeah. million. Which some a lot people of people did. A lot of people did. <laughs> Very recently, did you have you read about a Pepe coin? That's the new meme coin. That I, went up. I, no, I did. I, I'm sure. 
there'll be another I, one in a month, right? <laughs> I probably. I, <laughs> I mean, I went it, something ridiculous like people putting yeah. in thousands, making millions. Well, the only problem, the thing that concerns me about it is, is that you know when 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 Bitcoin, the, the majority of people that were buying Bitcoin bought it way after it was, you know. In the in the in the tens of thousands, they weren't buying it at five hundred dollars or thousand dollars or twelve. I mean, I remember when it first came out, and it you know it, I could have paid a thousand dollars for it, and I thought, oh, this is crazy, this is nuts. And so you feel stupid when it's at ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand. But um, so a lot of people made money, but most people lost a tremendous amount of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I would say ninety uh, percent of the people that invest in crypto lose money. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't understand well, what they're. What it's that's a also true of, tra- of traders, I guess. Though, isn't it? I think uh, it's true of option traders. It's true to uh, yeah. option speculators. You know, ninety percent of options expire worthless. That's why it's always better to be a seller. And mm-hmm. if you learn how to sell options, you can make a, a, a lot of money. Uh, it's just that you get that. If we all have that. That you know. That that urge to to really take a big risk because we can make 10, 50, 100 times our money. Um, but if I talk to crypto investors and I ask them, well, why is this going to go up? They don't yeah. really know. Uh, which is what's you know, if you ask me why Gannett's going to go up, I can tell you, give you a hundred reasons why. I can tell you a hundred reasons why I don't think it's going to go down either. Or what what the, what the intrinsic value is when you don't have any intrinsic value in an asset, it's like me telling you this pen is is worth, you know, a dollar today, but it could be worth $20, you know, a month from now. Why? I mean, it's, you know, there's lots of pens and I, I don't, mm-hmm. so I don't, I don't, I don't like to invest in things I don't understand and I don't understand crypto. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's the right way to go about it. I mean, obviously I yeah. generally uh, have slightly different views, but obviously it's, it's great to have someone on the show with a, uh, with opposing views. I, I won't go into details and, bore everyone with with my own opinions oh no really i, I want to learn so i you know i'm if you do a crypto i'm going to watch it because i'm i'm still trying to understand you know if it's going to replace the dollar for example or, or you know we're going to go to a digital world i sort of understand that but i still don't see how that happens so rapidly that that it's going to be you know it's going to create value you know mm-hmm. um what is it ultimately going to be worth? You know, I mean, there would have to be more coins and, you know, I don't know, but another discussion. I'd love to hear what you're, what you have to say on it. So I hope you do another podcast with somebody else and I'll watch it. We'll learn. <laughs> well, right. we talked a bit about it with, uh, with Mike Fay on my episode two. So if anyone's interested, okay. I'll direct, right. direct you to that one. I will watch it. <laughs> great. Well, it's been great having you. Um, yep. obviously on seeking alpha, um, got your investment group there. Is there anywhere else people can find you? Um, any other way they can reach your content? Uh, most of my, just about all my content is on Seeking Alpha. So I don't, uh, I don't have any other content out there just yet. Um, but, um, you know, I, I uh, so I'd say if you want to follow me or you want to contact me, the, you know, email me direct on Seeking Alpha or send me a message and I'll respond to everything that, uh, that comes my way. All right. Well, Lawrence, it's been great having you on the show. Um, yeah. Like I said, thanks a lot for coming on. And hey, I hope we you. get a chance to do it again. Sounds good. Take care. All right. Bye-bye, everyone.